Welcome, everybody, to day nine of the 7 a.m. Novelist 50 Day Writing Challenge, first draft edition. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. We're waiting for our participants to slowly fill the room. Um, today, we're talking about observant versus participant characters and why writers tend to be too nice to their characters, particularly a main protagonist that's very much like them. So, we've got Steve Allman and Kate Reculia. Steve is an author of a dozen books, including Candy Freak and Against Football, which um, were New York Times bestsellers for about four seconds, <laughs> which is amazing in four seconds. Uh, it's a great his, four seconds. It's a great four seconds. His new novel, All the Secrets of the World, has been optioned by 20th Century Fox. He's the recipient of an NEA grant for 2022 and teaches at Harvard and Wesleyan. His work has been published in the Best American Short Stories, the Best American Mysteries, and the New York Times Magazine. And we also have Kate Reculia. She's a novel living in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. She used to live in Boston. We really miss her here. She is the author of the novels This Must Be the Place and Bellwether Rhapsody, winner of the American Library Association's Alex Award. Her third novel, Tuesday Mooney Talks to Ghosts, was published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt in October 2019, it's just, and it's just a damn fun book. Um, she is currently a communications writer in the development office at Lehigh uh, University. And I love this. Sings in the Bach Choir of Bethlehem, the oldest Bach <laughs> choir in America. What part do you sing? Do you sing? You must sing. Um, uh, oh, God, I'm even forgetting the part. Not soprano. The one that's not soprano. I'm an alto. Yes. Alto. <laughs> this is how. Yeah. OK, so we're going to get we're going to get going today. Now, the reason why this is a concern, observant versus participant characters, is I oftentimes find that writers make their main characters, uh, they, they actually are observers instead of characters. And we do this because we ourselves are, are observers. And so there's a, so much of ourselves that we put into these main characters and we sometimes can't really see the difference. Um, Rick Riken has an excellent essay called The Author-Narrator-Character Merge that I'm gonna reference later as we continue to talk. But that's what some of the problem is happening that we confuse um, ourselves as the author with the, the speaker who's the narrator. And Steve has also talked about the idea of the narrator. And I use that essay, Steve, in my class. Oh, cool. And then, and then the idea of the character as being separate, a separate thing. Um, so Steve, I'm gonna let you to get, and also how we're too nice to our characters. So because we usually have that merge. So Steve, I'm gonna let you get talking about your ideas here. Yeah, I mean, my ideas sort of reside in the many failed novels I wrote. I finally <laughs> managed to get this novel published, but there were, as with most writers, there's like the tiny little tip of the iceberg that's like, oh, 20th Century Fox optioned your novel. Mm -hmm. And then there's the giant mass of failed drafts and manuscripts <laughs> that are moldering in drawers around your house or in your hard drive that really represent sort of the process by which you figured out how to write the successful piece. So for me, that was four or five novels, most of which were um, just as you described, some sort of Steve Allman stand-in character. I was writing what I know, right? Write what you know. And that became kind of a trap because I, I hadn't conceived of my protagonists as separate and apart from me. They were mostly the products of my infatuation with language and my ego need rather than my desire to push a character 
into the danger of self-revelation to really put them in danger. And I didn't really have a narrative strategy. The narrative strategy was to leap into the heads of my heroes who again, were very much like me, neurotic and sort of wounded, but also using humor to try to deflect that or deal with it. Hmm. I know would... nothing about that, Steve. I know, well, it's gonna sound <laughs> totally unfamiliar to you guys. And so they'd sort of bumble from one scene to the next, hoping to bump into these big ticket items, right? Epiphany and conflict and whatever, self-revelation all the while spouting smart alecky commentary. The, the novels had no subtext or maybe the subtext was something like, aren't I clever? Don't you think I'm <laughs> eloquent or sensitive? And that really kept the novels from feeling alive in any way because I think what I eventually realized is a novel is really about the protagonist's internal conflict and the, the, the plot of the novel is intended to press on that conflict all the time, to put them in a constant state of danger because they're divided about what they want um, or inhibited about what they want. When I figured that out, I sort of secrets that, that the novel, The Secrets of the World moved more or less on its own. It was that nice. feeling with a manuscript where you're not pushing, it's giving you energy, it's pulling. Oh, I think we lost him. But I think uh, he was saying something wonderful. Pulling you through because Lorraine. There he goes. Yeah. Excellent. I'm Pulling you through that you were just able to follow the character right. then. Excellent. Right. Excellent. Yeah. And I think the, the issue is if you make your main character an observer, that character is also taking on the reader's role, which there mm -hmm. are some experimental novels that might do that, but that can also block the reader from being able to take on that role. And then you'd have, then you have two observers looking at nothing. Basically there's kind of an abstract nothingness on the page. Right. Kate, how about you? So, you know, I was just thinking about this and I'm like, maybe one of the reasons like young writers in America struggle with this is that so many of us are told to read The Great Gatsby at a young age. <laughs> it's like your main character is like, just observe beautifully. But just he's not the protagonist. He's not the protagonist. Or is he? I don't know. Maybe. No, um, he's the but, peripheral. Uh, he's not. Gatsby yeah. is the protagonist. Yeah. Right. So I um, I really think one of the sort of like qualities of my life that made me a writer. I am an only child. My mother was a teacher and I went to school out of where we lived. I went to her school. So I was an out of district teacher's child. And, and I was always sort of an insider outsider. Like I knew everyone, but I didn't live in the community. So I was always like, just watch, this is fascinating. You're part of this, but you're separate from it at the same time. And I have definitely struggled, especially with Tuesday Mooney Talks to Ghosts. Like Tuesday is very much me. And so is the character of Dex, who's sort of her like the Watson to her Sherlock Holmes. And part of it was basing her on an Indiana Jones kind of character who he is functionally kind of a cipher. He doesn't have a lot of personal revelations, right? And the other part of it was like, I just wanted her to have a good time in Boston because I missed Boston. <laughs> and and it's, it's so, it's such an easy trap to fall into, but Steve, you're absolutely right. Um, with my second book, Bellwether Rhapsody, I don't know if it was because it's built on more of like a, of a drawing room Agatha Christie novel. And I've read so many of those and she is so cruel to her characters. And so like, here's this person with all these strange little foibles and she just winds them up and like sends them down a maze, right? And writing in that kind of tradition with that structure. I'm a big fan of like let genre and structure and constraint guide you and then be the thing you push against, right? Like it's so much easier to have something to push against than to just like create, be an artist in a vacuum. Um, all that to say, those are my thoughts on it. It's 
7.09 in the morning. <laughs> very, very articulate. Very Thank articulate. You. Yes. So we do have, so um, we have a someone in the um, chat asking, can you explain this observer's voice more? So let's talk about this more. So you've got you've got the author, and the author is usually a, we we sometimes will talk about the implied author author of a book, and that means that you're reading a novel and you have certain thoughts about who must have written this novel, what their intentions are writing this novel, what their voice is, what their intelligence is, intelligence is where they're coming from. So much so that sometimes when you turn to the picture at the back of the book, you're really upset because mm -hmm. I don't that part, picture doesn't fit anything of what you imagined. And if you actually meet the author in person, that is, can also be a really upsetting uh, experience because you're like, who are you? You're not what I had in mind. But that person is kind of like the godlike one that's holding all the strings. The author will create a narrator. And the narrator is has their own intentions in telling the story and usually a very specific voice in telling the story that's different than the author's. So the voice is very specific to that book and to the, um, the, the point of the book is trying to make, the world that the book is trying to enter. And so the narrator is basically our guide um, through everything that happens. And the narrator in general knows everything that happens in the book in terms of what happens at the beginning, what happens at the end. And the narrator can choose whether or not to tell us those things or pretend that they don't actually know it. And this is similar to like when you tell um, a friend, a story about something that happened to you. You wouldn't believe what happened to me yesterday. So I was walking along the street. So that's the narrator voice. And the narrator knows exactly what happened that they got, I don't know, swallowed by an alligator or something. <laughs> but they start the story with, I was walking along the street to set up the context and also to off, uh, um, offer a little bit of uh, suspense possibly. So when when that narrative voice, you can't believe what I was what I went through yesterday, drops to I was walking along the street, that's the character. Okay, because that's the character at the moment in time, um, doing an action at the moment in time. And the character at that moment in time walking along the street does not know that they're going to be eaten by an alligator or whatever happens to them, hopefully, unless they have psychic abilities. There's the cat. I love Kate's cat. The cat has joined the session. <laughs> um, so, so, and then the character, so the narrator has intentions about telling the story and has a certain voice. And then the character has their own voice and their own intentions in living the story. The character that's walking along the street, their intentions is basically they want to go, I don't know, get a donut from Dunkin' Donuts or they want to, they're just trying to, they have their own purpose. And it's usually smaller, more banal, where the narrator, again, knows everything that's going on and, and, and knows more about it. The character has no idea. And the character and narrator's voice can be very, very different. Um, and this is true even in first person. So remember that in first person, like if I was telling a story of myself when I was seven years old, I would hope that my narrative voice as a 50-year-old would be very different from my character's voice as a 70-year-old. So that makes sense, right? Now, even when we're doing present tense, however, there is a gap unless you're doing stream of consciousness, there is some gap between the narrator and the character um, because the narrator isn't telling us every single thing beat by beat. If they were, then we'd be, we'd be more in stream of consciousness territory. And even that's not stream of consciousness. Actually, if, a, if you had a book that told us every single thing beat by beat, we would probably kill ourselves. Um, so, and then it's also about 
and I'll, I'll try to find Rick Riken's essay online and post it on our Substack and also on the podcast notes. Um, it's, 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 it does tend to get a little academic, but the closer, so there's times in, the, in your book where the narrative voice might become very close to the character's voice and there's times when it might separate from the character's voice. And, and that's when you're talking about working in close first person or close third person, or when you have more narrative distance. And it all gets really crazy. This is probably the most complex idea <laughs> when it comes to writing and it drives people crazy, but it might be something you want to look for as you start to read. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, also, it's yeah, so ahead. tied to like point of view, you know, yeah. it's, it's like the, like, the, the more subtle way to understand point of view and what you're doing. And a lot of times I found that I do it subconsciously kind of and like when I'm revising then I'll notice like oh this feels a little closer this doesn't this doesn't this feel if usually if something feels weird it's because something is different about the narrative narrator character point of view like there's some disconnect in there and that's usually what's best to use it because if you're using Mm -hmm. these sorts of tools that we give you ahead of time I think you're going to block yourself you're going to block off that creative sense but if you feel that there's something wrong and can use them to maybe examine what you're doing after the fact, it might be more useful. Steve, go ahead. Well, uh, one thing that's useful is we talk a lot about point of view, but it's much more helpful to think about maybe after the first draft is done so you don't get too self-conscious. What is the narrative stance of this book? That is, so for instance, in War and Peace, Tolstoy says, all happy families are like every unhappy family is unhappy in a different way. It's the first line of the book. And what he's doing there is he's not leaping into scene. He is staking out territory for the narrator to directly direct address the reader about his ideas about how families are either unhappy or mostly unhappy. Um, But he's saying, this is my concern and I'm gonna speak sometimes in this novel, I the narrator on behalf of the author, I'm gonna speak directly to you, uh, the reader. Then there are other moments where the action heats up and we move into a more subjective mode where Vronsky enters the ballroom and the love triangle is all in the same room. There's Kitty and there's Anna. And then you wanna be in the embodied experience of the character in that dangerous moment. So the point of view swoops into the body and mind and heart of the character. But what Tolstoy has given himself is all the options. He can directly speak to the reader about issues of concern. He can directly, his narrator can directly speak to the reader about the complex context of the world that he's asking the reader to move through. And when things get really exciting and it's a moment of high drama, he can move inside the character's experience. And we can have that feeling that we have in the best scenes where we feel like, oh my God, what's gonna happen next? how does Anna react to this new development or these words or this gesture? What Kate was talking about with Nick Carraway in The Great Gatsby is actually a pretty famous archetype of a narrative stance that's in, for instance, um, Moby Dick, where you have yeah. the tale of a person of action told by an observer character. But mm-hmm. the protagonist, as you pointed out, Michelle, is the observer, is the character themselves. So yeah. Right. The reason they're not telling the story is because you want, they're a person of action. They're not reflective. Nick Carraway understands the meaning of Gatsby's doomed desire to erase the poverty of his past by getting the rich girl. That's not Gatsby's gig. Gatsby's gig is to buy shirts and throw parties and and like pursue his colossal dream. Mm -hmm. And in both those cases, the protagonists, Gatsby and Ahab, they're just, they're too large 
and probably too neurotic to be able to tell their own stories. Well, they're, they're, yeah, yeah. That, that's not what that's not their job. Like, yeah, you know, right. the person of action sometimes isn't a person of reflection. Right. And if we're going to get both into the novel, then sometimes you have to divide and say, this is going to be an observer character who's going to observe the crazy tumultuous action of this character who isn't really self-reflective, but makes a lot of trouble. Yes, yes. And this is why it can also help. It, you know, there are a lot of agents and editors who resist a first person present novel. And that's because there is that there's no reflection. There's no chance of having the narrator being able to um, give meaning to events. Now, I know, though, like in, y, in YA in middle grade, using first person presence is much more common, probably because those right. books don't have as much reflection. Um, but in adult fiction, it's a little bit it's just easier to be able to separate your narrator in that way. And I do think, so Steve wrote this great essay and I think it's online. So I think I'll be able to reference it on Substack, Steve, your essay about narrators and how, and you're like, you probably wrote several essays on narrators. So how we begin to even forget about the role of the narrator, that we have a narrator there. And part of that is because we watch TV and film so much and there yes. doesn't seem to be a narrator there. Yeah. So do you wanna talk more about that? Just we're under the, we're in the ages of under the ages of like visual storytelling. That's where we are as a culture. And it's great that there are 52 people who are up in the morning to listen to us go on and on about narration. It's a small <laughs> miracle. But chances are when we like knock off from work tonight, we're going to talk about whatever show is on Netflix or whatever. Like that's yeah. kind of where the culture's at. And writers under the ages of that kind of pressure feel like, oh, my God, I better jump into scene immediately and not even think about the narrator, because if somebody's directly addressing the reader, that's not that's telling rather than showing and it won't grab the reader by the throat. And we've kind of turned our back on the virtues of traditional storytelling of, of traditional narration. If you look at the books of any great 19th century author, whether it's Tolstoy or George Eliot or J Jane Austen, there's always this strong compassionate and deeply insightful and often brutally honest narrative voice. Jane Austen is probably the capital city of this. When she begins Emma, she says, Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever and rich with a comfortable home and happy disposition seemed to unite some of the best blessings of existence and had lived nearly 21 years in the world with very little to distress or vex her. And, <laughs> and then she goes on to say, but Emma is entitled. And she's not aware of her entitlement. She behaves in a self-absorbed, destructive way. But don't worry, dear reader, she's unaware of these blind spots, but she's not going to be for long. It's literally Jane Austen in the first two paragraphs of Emma saying, here's my central character. I am going to force her up against her blind spots. She's going to get her comeuppance. And it's thrilling because that's what we want to see is the character put in danger. Exactly, What's that? exactly. That great Kurt Vonnegut quote, like, no matter how sweet and kind your characters are, make horrible things happen to them so you can see what they're made of. I feel like I got that piece of advice at a very critical moment in my development. And maybe I, I feel like it probably keys into two things about me. I might be a little like, like, ooh, like, let's, as I like scratch my cat here, like, <laughs> let's, let's play with the little characters, like, um, but also it's just the, the frustrated, like, I was never a theater kid, but I probably should have been a theater kid if I were braver, right? The idea that you can like put these people in different actors in different scenarios and just see what happens. It's thrilling. Mm -hmm. And I think it's necessary because, so I always think of Flannery O'Connor and she wrote some stories in which some people didn't think that they were actually finished. 
And she would argue back because she was always pretty secure in what she was working on. And she said, yeah. the, the story is finished when the mystery of the character has been revealed. And so I always talked about the idea of cracking the character open. So the mystery of the characters revealed, their humanity is revealed to us. And it's really why we read, um, to really get inside what is going on with the character and what is human about them. And we can't get there unless we put them under pressure because yeah. otherwise they keep on all their societal walls and all their, all their showmanship. Um, and so you need to kind of to be able to get underneath them and do things to them so that those things fall away. And another more contemporary novel that I think has that strong narrative voice is James McBride's Deacon King Kong, which is, you probably hear me reference it a number of times on this video. It's a great book. <laughs> love it. I just love it so much. It's just such a delight. Um, okay. Yeah. It, um, we have a couple questions. We've got a lot of questions. Cause again, I just think this is a big, um, mm -hmm. So Jesse Liberty says, um, does the narrator speaking in the past tense imply that they know what happens next? Yes. Yes. I mean, to, to Michelle's point, the narrator knows everything that's going to happen. There's a novel by this guy, Per Olav Enquist. He's a, he's a uh, Swedish author. And um, it, it begins with the most astonishing uh, first sentence, which essentially says, uh, Let's see, I even have it. Um, the, it, it, it says, uh, on April 5th, 1768, Johann Friedrich Strunzi was appointed royal physician to King Christian VII of Denmark, and four years later, he was executed. Okay, that's actually what happens in the whole novel, is that Strunzi <laughs> comes to court to cure the king, and ultimately, the king has him killed, right? The patient has his own doctor killed. And it's kind of thrilling. I think oftentimes because of our anxiety about wh what the story is and whether it will be you know, alluring and is there enough of a mystery to keep the reader going, we withhold information, which is completely vexing for the reader, by the way. We think it's, I don't know, like tempting them into the story. It's actually hiding the story from them. When I know that Strinzi is gonna be killed, the person who came to cure the king gets murdered by his patient, I actually wanna keep reading. That's mm -hmm. promising me that there's a good and tumultuous story. Just like when Jane Austen says, Emma Woodhouse is really great in some ways, but she's also an entitled little, you know, little um, snob and she's gonna get it in this novel. That makes me want to read the novel because I feel like the story is foregrounded. The narrator has that power to say, bad things are gonna happen to this character who you're gonna come to love. Yes. Yeah. I think it's um, Ian Foster who says, you can't ignore the reader's most Neanderthal desire to know what happens next. Yeah. Um, and you have to give some seed of that so that we think that something's gonna happen next, that something is, is that we're gonna be led somewhere. Um, and that we're, and then we read in order to, to find out how the character gets there or find out that, that in between. Kate, what were yeah. you gonna say? Uh, so I was going to say, yes, especially third person. I write a lot. Most of my books, all of my books are third person, um, sometimes present, sometimes past. They do know what happens. But you, the writer, while you are writing the book, you do not yet need to know what happens, especially yeah. when you're writing the first draft. Yes. Like I yes. I'm working on a murder mystery right now again. And spoiler alert, I think I know who did it. But like, we'll find out when we get there. And and I've been seeding all of this sort of, you know, kind of who I am hiding things, right? I am keeping things from the reader because I don't know what they are. And it's my job in revision to go back and make all of that feel of a piece instead of just like 
fainting, you know, for no reason. Yes. And definitely do that in the revision because I find that people get so stuck on what they've written the first time around yes. that even though they've made discoveries later in the book, they're not willing to um, yep. re-see um, their, their beginnings in order to use that narrative knowledge. Yeah. yeah, the first time you're writing the book, you're you're reading also, you're reading a book that doesn't exist yet, right? And it's a weird kind of Ouroboros situation of writing that first draft and coming back into revision. And give yourself the space to like discover things and play with that. It's not, nothing, nothing is set in stone until it's printed. And even then, it's a living thing. <laughs> even then, yeah. And how many authors edit their books as they're, before they do readings? Yeah, mm -hmm. I do. Um, Mary Red also has... Um, have there been any novels written totally from a narrator's voice with very little character's dialogue? Yes, many. And, and, and The Royal Physician's Visit by Enqvist is a great example of that. There is a little bit of speaking by the characters, but it's mostly this omniscient narrator who's setting out um, the, the, the action from sort of from on high. And I would say actually Vonnegut's a good example as well. In many mm -hmm. of his books, there's a little bit of dialogue, but it's mostly what dominates is that voice of the narrator who's guiding us through the characters, um, you know, traumas and, and uh, sort of the twists and turns. Judith Kessler also had a really interesting question, which was, okay. you know, if you're writing in third person close and once in a while you want to lean back into a more omniscient POV, even mm -hmm. for a sentence or a paragraph, can you do that without being disconcerting? My response, Judith, would be you have to set precedent for that. Yeah. What happens is people leap into close third um, and then they get stuck there. That's what happened to me for all those failed novels. What I needed was to do what Tolstoy does or Austin, which is to stake out that ground early on and to begin in a way that says this is a novel where the narrator sometimes going to directly address the reader to provide context or to comment or reflect on the action but also we're gonna move in close with the characters when they're in interesting moments. And um, if you don't do that, it's gonna seem odd when you pop out suddenly uh, and it will be disconcerting for you as the writer, but also for the reader. Yeah, so doing that at the opening of the book, and I generally find that those narrative uh, distance moves, um, having increments and, and, and having that larger, we're backing away now, happening at the beginning of a, of a chapter or the mm -hmm. beginning of right. a scene. So I remember one of my favorite books is um, uh, uh, Saul and Patsy um, by Charles Baxter. And there's a huge scene in the middle of the book in which a kid, I'm gonna give this away, shoots himself in front of this family's house. Um, and so it's this, it's this enormous scene that we've been waiting for. And what Baxter does after that, after the, the, the couple Saul and Patsy are kind of undergoing this, in the very next chapter, he backs away and is actually calling Saul and Patsy the man and wife. Uh. And we have some serious uh, narrative distance there. And what, what he's able to do that because we've just had this really awful event. So the reader is actually ready to back away next and to take a breath, to, to get some release. So it's also be, be very careful as to where you do it. Think about where the reader is at, where they're at emotionally and not doing it just because, oh, I needed to do it here because I need to get this information in. Um, that's not gonna work as well. Yeah, it's also, you, oh, sorry, sorry, Steve. No, go ahead. <laughs> so to uh, go back to what Steve was saying about a visual culture, if I am also a very visual person, I love film, I love movies. 
it's sort of the difference between an establishing shot and a close up yes. and like a you know two two or three people in a shot like those are all different levels of distance that you the the viewer of the film are getting information at a at a remove and if it helps to think about it that way that's helpful to me yeah if you think of dickens you think of uh, great expectations the opening is really a brilliant establishing shot where we get mm -hmm. London and then we move in on the little boy and Pip and the convict. That's actually cinematography before there were cameras. Mm -hmm. And this is going to be a little wonky, but... Poor Steve. Poor Steve stopped <laughs> on the word wonky. That's... <laughs> we'll get him caught up again. When we move into like... Totally appropriate. That's totally appropriate. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> when we move in Am again... Am I unfrozen? Nope, you're unfrozen. Oh, we'll just... Um, well, if you think about sort of Hemingway's influence on American letters, he basically said, we should just be doing, uh, we should just be seeing the characters and just what they do. Just show us that. Never tell anything. Don't mouth it up too much. He was very anti-narrator. And that wasn't just because Hemingway was a macho dude who was like, went into his bullfighting Michigas. It was also because he was writing at the dawn of film. And mm. the cultures trans transfer really to a mode of storytelling that was primarily visual where everything is shown rather than told. And that's become part of the established dogma of creative writing where everybody says, show, don't tell. You should always be in scene. You should never tell. Info dumps are terrible. And in fact, I feel like the novels that I find most gratifying have figured out how to find a balance between the showing and telling, the observing and reflecting, which is crucial but also moving into the character's experience when they're in moments where you've built a ramp to moments that are really revelatory. Excellent. And I know most recently Brandon Taylor wrote about this on his sweater weather um, mm, so substack, and he has, has never been convinced that that interior voice or that even that overarching narrative voice um, is useful. But then he started thinking about his favorite novels and realizing, oh, wait, <laughs> my favorite <laughs> oh, novels wait. actually do this. Right. So um, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to end and get you guys back to your writing desk. We could talk about this for a very long, very long time. <laughs> Kate and Steve are just so perfect for this. Um, I am going to try to make reference of Steve's essay on narrators and Rick Reichens, and then also find Brandon Taylor's piece. Um, put it on our Substack. Put it on the podcast notes. Thank you, everyone. I hope you have a really good writing day. Um, tomorrow we're going to talk about uh, what your character needs to learn with writer Meghna Raganathan. Um, and if you want to support what we're doing, you can follow along the podcast, the 7am novelist podcast, and you can rate and review that podcast or find us and find the full schedule on our Substack channel. Thank you both so much, Kate Thank and you. Steve. And I hope everyone is invigorated today and not too confused, <laughs> just is able <laughs> to get writing and thinking about this stuff. Okay. All right. Happy Thanks, Wednesday. Thank you. Bye. You never wonder why There isn't nothing here at all